This is Mike Levitt. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of healthcare. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to The Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Cleaver and Daniel Chipping of the Institute for Advancing Health Value. The Institute is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating the industry to succeed in health value. Join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. Race to Value listeners, this week we're talking about the thesis for a long-term care ACO. We have Jason Furman as a guest. He's the CEO of LTC ACO. This is an ACO that began in 2016. It's the first ACO in the country that's focused specifically on the special needs of Medicare beneficiaries residing in long-term care facilities. And this includes, but is not limited to the frail elderly, individuals living with Alzheimer's disease or dementia, depression, amputations, developmental or physical disabilities, patients with renal failure, and on and on and on. I mean, lots of complexity, lots of multiple chronic diseases, lots of complications in managing this very intense population. But there's success in this story with LTC ACO. I mean, this is an ACO that's working with physicians and LTC facilities. They've been recognized nationally and they've been rewarded for their results uh, in the MSSP by delivering quality and uh, cost of care improvements to this very vulnerable subset of the Medicare population. And this is uh, not unlike the the ISNPs that we see in Medicare Advantage, the institutional special needs plans that, that we all know of. But this is an ACO that's doing it within the traditional MSSP. Dan, I just really enjoyed learning today from our conversation with Jason. This is a very nuanced approach, and it's great to see an organization like this doing the good work and getting the results. Yeah, Eric, I agree 100%. It's a nuanced and unique approach. There are very few organizations out there doing this type of work. And I find it interesting that they're participating with providers that they don't pass along downside risk to the providers. The providers don't need to contribute capital. Um, they're really, it's a, it's a neat model to learn more about and see what can be done for the traditional Medicare population. I'll just go a little bit further and just share with our audience. Mr. Fearman leads the LTC ACO as a part of Genesis Healthcare. He's responsible for leading and managing strategic value-based initiatives, including the development and participation in APMs and providing effective post-acute solutions at lower cost. Uh, Eric, I think our listeners are going to really enjoy hearing and learning more about how to care for their elderly populations from Mr. Fuhrman. Now I'll just hand it over to our guest, Jason Fuhrman, CEO of LTC ACO, as he joins us this week in the Race to Value. 
Jason, welcome to the Race to Value. It's great to have you on the show this week. Thanks, Sarah. Glad to be here. Well, I thought we'd begin our conversation today by talking about the thesis for a long-term care ACO. LTC ACO is the first accountable care organization to serve Medicare beneficiaries who live in long-term care facilities, partnering with physicians and facilities to transform the way healthcare is provided to this underserved population. And your ACO is a pioneer in leveraging the benefits of an ACO in the long-term care industry and is deeply committed to the success of its participating providers. And the ACO has really had an outstanding success in dramatically improving quality and cost of healthcare delivered to residents in these facilities through engagement with practitioners and the facilities themselves. And not only is your model underpinned by a strong thesis to improve population health for those living in long-term care facilities, but it's also been enabled by an unparalleled level of support to LTC physicians, uh, enabling them to deliver the highest quality of care for this very unique and underserved high needs population. So I wanted to ask you if you could describe the long history that LTC ACO has in improving the cost and quality of care for Medicare beneficiaries. And to that end, can you describe the operational thesis for the ACO and serving populations who live in long-term care facilities and how that differs from maybe many of the physician-led and health system-led ACOs that are out there? Sure. Thanks, Eric. Appreciate the question. And maybe I'll start with the last question first, and that is kind of the underlying thesis of this model was really predicated upon the Medicare Advantage Institutional-Based Special Needs, or ISNP model. After spending 20-plus years in Medicare Advantage world, having run as part of the E-Medicare Advantage plan, an ISNP, we were really looking for a more cost-efficient, capital-efficient way to deal with this population. And as the Accountable Care Act came out in 2010 and you studied, you began a study in 2011, and many people, you know, began to think about the MSSP or Medicare Cheered Savings Program as really many Medicare Advantage platforms built in the fee-for-service world. And so we went ahead and, and given the assets that we had within Genesis Healthcare, one asset being a, a physician group that served well over 5,000 Medicare beneficiaries in long-term care facilities, we went ahead and entered the program in 2016. And so our goal was to really create a value-based system upon which we could improve quality and measure it accordingly as CMS promulgates and drive down unnecessary costs out of the system and therefore be able to return those savings to entities such as long-term care facilities who were not being rewarded at the time for the services they're being asked to provide. Moreover, we, we really did make that physician partner more centric in the care delivery system and rewarded them as well, where it previously had been in an environment where it was fee-for-service billing only, didn't really have an opportunity to participate in value-based care. And this created an, an environment for which they could you know, be rewarded for the services they, they were delivering at the time. So we were really excited to be able to bring this to the market as a way for us to wake up the ecosystem in, in doing so. And when I say wake up the ecosystem, I mean by providing data 
uh, um, and outcomes to these providers so they can make the intellectual choice on in how to care for their patients a little bit more differently than just looking at a chart um, of a patient um, and being able to manage a population. So we've been very excited about the, the program. Um, it has been a very nice success in, in terms of both improving quality and driving down un unnecessary costs out of the system. Um, and, and, and so we're, we're, we're pleased with where we are right now in, in the ecosystem. Jason, you started the, the response to Eric's question talking about ISNPs, and I want to dive a little bit further into this comparison. It is very similar to an ISNP in a Medicare Advantage plan, and I, just to clarify for our listeners, the ISNPs are institutional special needs plans in the MA program, and they're designed to meet the needs of people living in long-term care settings like a, a, a nursing facility or skilled nursing facilities or inpatient psych facilities. And the difference is you're serving traditional Medicare beneficiaries in the MSSP. And LTCACO was launched by Genesis Healthcare, the biggest post-acute operator in the country with significant experience in Medicare Advantage risk and bundled payment models, as you alluded to. And in my understanding of the special needs plans for residents in LTC facilities, you mentioned the term capital efficient in your remarks. And I want to kind of latch onto that and talk about the significant amount of capital that's required for regulatory reserves to support the level of insurance risk that's transferred. So I'm hoping you can describe how the MSSP is a more ideal platform than ISNP in taking on the risk in the long-term care setting. And given that ISNP is facility-centric and MSSP is physician-centric, how is that reconciled within LTCACO to make sure that incentives are aligned at both levels? Yeah, Daniel, thank, thanks again for the question. I think that um, when I talk about capital efficiency, it really happens on multiple levels. Um, the first level is the fact we are not in a Medicare shared savings program. We are not at assuming insurance risk. Insurance risk is that risk which is passed along to an entity that is then, then downstreamed with the uh, or held accountable for the responsibility to downstream those dollars to providers. That is not what the Medicare shared savings program is about. The Medicare shared savings program while you can elect to assume risk, that risk is simply for the losses that you may incur, and those losses would be payable to CMS. So on one hand, you're dealing with insurance risk that's regulated by, by every state in the country. That's where the insurance laws sit. And the insurance commissioners of each state are setting the regulatory requ requirements for that capital required to assume that risk. So it could be, be anything that the insurance commissioner wishes it to be, whether it's for a nominal population, whether it's a million or two million. And so for the LTC ACO, for example, you know, we operate in 36 states. We have lives and we're able to operate in all 50, but we've got lives in 36 states. So if you take a look at that and you say, well, I need a million dollars, I need two million dollars. So I'm looking at anywhere between 36 and $72 million worth of capital reserves to stick in a bank, right? These, this is not capital that's going toward the business. It's, these are just reserves. I mean, that's really not an efficient use of capital. The other part of efficiency that you're encumbered to under the Medicare Advantage program or ISNFs 
is the need to create a provider network, the need to pay claims, all kinds of re regulatory requirements and oversight that CMS promulgates, where most of those services are already buried within a Medicare fee-for-service platform. So we are not um, encumbered by those costs. And using our business as an example, when you take a look at the overhead that's allocated to this program, it represents approximately 2 to 3% of the risk that we're carrying or the medical costs under management. And the, that medical costs under management is the equivalent of you know, the capitation that a Medicare Advantage plan would receive. And they can typically range from, their, their overhead typically ranges from 12 to 25 to 30%. So it creates a sufficiency that from a business perspective makes sense. Now, you know, listeners sitting back saying, well, Medicare Advantage is growing and a population is becoming smaller, Medicare fee-for-service, and, and all that is true. But we're talking about residents of long-term care facilities where less than 15% of them are in a Medicare Advantage plan as they come into a nursing home. And thus, 85% of the population remains in fee-for-service. So the platform that we have is one that's, that, that's very much anomalous to the Medicare Advantage world in that our market is significantly higher than the remaining market in Medicare Advantage to go after. So we, we continue to see growth within fee-for-service. You know, 10,000 people a day are migrating into Medicare fee-for-service. You know, to counter that point, in the community, you've got Medicare Advantage eating into that. In this environment, you don't have that. So those lives are sticking in, in Medicare fee-for-service, and thus they're available for attribution within Medicare Shared Savings Program. Well, Jason, I'm really interested in learning more about how your ACO operationalizes a population health playbook strategy that's unique to your patient population. I mean, you're really in a trailblazing space. I think you use the term waking up an ecosystem because that's exactly what LTC ACO is doing and creating the alignment of financial incentives to care about patient outcomes at a more elevated level than what we see in, in traditional fee-for-service. And, you know, these are very complex patients with intensive care needs. And I remember when I used to be a leader with physician-led ACOs on the primary care side. I mean, we did everything in our power to ensure that institutional special needs patients were not attributed to our ACO population because they would hurt our benchmark. Yet your ACO has an entirely different approach by taking risk for these patients head on. And I wanted to ask you if you could walk us through your ACO's playbook strategies and the various care management programs that you have that support fewer hospitalizations and SNF utilization and prevent short stays in hospitals and reduce hospice use for patients who are maybe greater than two or three years away from end of life. I mean, how do all these programs work together and how do these interventions support the improvement of quality and cost outcomes for this very vulnerable subset of the Medicare population? Our belief, um, and we, we really run this Medicare Shared Savings Program as if it's a Medicare Advantage program in the fee-for-service world. So we're really looking at using the same tenants um, that an ISNF program would use, and that is you know, creating the proper alignment for all providers, 
um, and providing the, the upside rewards for the providers. So they're incented to do the right thing for the patient and get paid for it. So we do use the term waking up the ecosystem. Um, this is an environment where most providers, if not you know, 90%, 100% of them, really have no idea what's happening with their patients, except when, God forbid, they end up in a hospital or, or something worse, they, they, they pass away, um, have any knowledge really of what's going on with them as they start to move through the continuum. And so, you know, one of the, the beautiful parts about this business is that we're dealing with physicians, we're dealing with nurse practitioners, we're dealing with very smart, a very smart and intellectually curious part of the continuum. So the more data that we can put in front of them, whether it comes to hospital utilization, whether it becomes, whether it, it, it deals with the, the skilled nursing facility utilization or part A, whether you, you brought up hospice, which is a great point, whether it has to do with hospice that really does get overutilized and, and, and somewhat underutilized for those people that are truly at the very end of life. But we try to put the data forth that, that, that helps to inform these providers and let them know how their folks are moving through the continuum so they can be much more ultra-sensitive to the care delivery that's taken place along the way. So, you know, for hospice, we see a lot of patients and, you know, that could be 20% of the population that's on hospice for, you know, greater than a year where the benefit really says, you know, hospice is for those people that are predicted. And I understand from a, from a clinical perspective, it's hard to really, you break that word predicted down into less than six months, but you have people that have been in hospice for a long, 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 long time in this environment. The flip side is you have people that have been on for just a few days, um, which isn't the right way the hospice should be delivered either. So we're trying to provide information to these providers so they can be awakened to what's happening with their population. We're trying to identify those patients that are being hospitalized time after time after time for the same clinical condition. We're in the process of putting out a data intelligence tool that will help with those predictive analytics and provide our, our practitioners whether physicians or nurse practitioners or physician assistants with additional information uh, from a predictive perspective using artificial intelligence to move the ball forward and to decrease unnecessary services. So again, there, there's a lot wrapped up there. The beautiful part of this is that it is, we are dealing with an intellectually curious population. Um, population is very interested in data, not to say that everybody's working with the data the way that we envision, but but many do, and many, many do care, and they do gravitate to this type of data as it's being published, and the feedback we get is phenomenal. Um, that's not to say that the results are always phenomenal. That just to say that their apprehension and their receptivity to receiving it helps to really bend the cost curve. From a quality perspective, it's the same thing, you know, we're measured under a handful of quality measures that we put forth when they go into their electronic medical record system. And that information informs them as to what quality gaps still need to be closed during the course of a year. And, and by doing that, we're able to prove to CMS and to the market and, and to our peers just how well we're doing in 
um, enhanced inequality measures promulgated by CMS um, to this population. Jason, you know, as I listen to you and I think about your model, I'm imagining reading the, the list of causes of death in America, and that list always includes chronic diseases like cancer, diabetes, heart disease, dementia. And each condition uh, requires ongoing skilled care, with some involving hospitalizations and courses of treatment that might include pricey drug therapies and other types of interventions. And among those common conditions, though, one is set apart from the rest. When you think about dementia, it's unique in that we don't have a known cure. We don't have treatments that are proven to significantly slow the disease. And in fact, Alzheimer's and dementia are the only top 10 causes of death in the U.S. that cannot be prevented. And so when you think about the numbers on top of this, it's really staggering. We spend upwards of $200 billion on Alzheimer's and dementia, and that's more than cardiology and cancer care combined. And the rate of progression for Alzheimer's disease varies widely. A lot of the resources go into caring for the patients, and they can live for quite a long time after diagnosis. But when they do die, they comprise a significant portion of the 5% of Medicare patients that die each year and account for a quarter of all the health spending for seniors. I'd be interested in hearing your thoughts on, on how dementia can benefit from value-based care. And although Alzheimer's progress, progression can't be slowed and the disease can't be cured, is there evidence that these patients can effectively be managed in an ACO environment like yours? Thanks, Daniel. I mean, it's it's a good question, and I'm not a clinician, so I'm not going to respond as one. But the interesting part of this model that that coincides with your question is that these patients are being cared for in a long-term care facility. So I think the numbers that we all read in our industry regs, you know, point out the stats that you just um, indicated. I think that when you start drilling into it and you were to bifurcate those folks that are living at home and suffering from Alzheimer's and dementia and the costs associated with them versus those folks that are living in a long-term care facility are dramatically different. I mean, the benefit of our program or one of the benefits of our program, and some of it gets back to capital efficiency, other gets back to the heart of your question, is that we're leveraging the care that's already being these people are already being cared for in place. Um, these people already have nurses that are rounding on them every day. These people already have medical assistants that are assisting them with their daily activities of living. And, and so while, while you're exactly right, and it, I'm not here saying that their services and their needs aren't expanded a bit, it's nothing like those folks are living in a community. They're well cared, they're typically well cared for making providers, physicians aware that they really have been diagnosed by them or someone else as, as having dementia or Alzheimer's, by making the, that provider sensitive to work with the facility staff to be sensitive to that need so that they're getting the care that they need so they're not creating this disorientation that sometimes leads to all these false positives that causes hospitalization creates a huge benefit. So I think there's something inherently different about this population that resides in a long-term care facility that have dementia, have Alzheimer's, 
That's not to say that every facility treats them the same, but it, it's dramatically different than those folks that are left at home, right, by themselves, very little support, that end up bouncing back and forth between care settings. This is incredibly different. And I think the way that we align our incentives between the providers and the facilities help to create an environment where people are really being cared for in place. Again, not perfect, but it creates that mentality that let's do everything that we can to care for this patient in place for the good of the patient and saving the system money. That's how I'd respond to that question. And again, I think the numbers that you, you threw out there are a bit muddled um, between two di very distinct populations. And I think that even for the institutionalized folks that are driving those costs, by having a program like this, and even the ISNIP business, right? You're driving down the cost of care because you've aligned incentives. So Jason, uh, you mentioned earlier that your ACO is really focused on preventing these potentially avoidable hospitalizations. And, you know, we all know as leaders in value-based care, you know, hospitalizations are a leading driver of costs and they're extremely taxing events for patients. I mean, the impact of a hospitalization on a patient can include more time in bed, which can result in increased blood clots and pressure ulcers and muscle atrophy and loss of function. And additionally, these hospitalized patients, they often become more vulnerable to things like weight loss and increased risk of falls and infections like C. diff and UTIs and MRSA. And, you know, they, they get their sleep patterns disrupted. There's changes in their medication. There's depression associated with that. A lot of things going on. And your ACO, I know, is laser focused on this goal of reducing these potentially avoidable hospitalizations. And you've been quite successful in making these accurate, reliable, and actionable predictions. You mentioned some of the predictive modeling that you use in your program. And I love to understand more about how you're analyzing and providing actionable data and insights uh, to your ACO team and how that empowers them to deliver value-based care. Can you describe your data and analytics infrastructure and how your ACO leverages predictive modeling to make indicated interventions that can potentially reduce these avoidable hospitalizations? Yeah, I think the first thing I'd say is, um, you know, data is useless unless it's being used. And so um, we are feeding data that's coming from a physician's electronic medical record system, a facility's electronic medical record system, and drugs under the Medicare Part D system into an artificial intelligence predictive modeling tool that helps to predict the risk of hospitalization. It's a relatively new technology for us. We're in a process of rolling it out, but our whole goal is to be able to get this data from different parts of the care delivery system in order to make the providers at both ends, whether it's facility or whether it's physicians, nurse practitioners, aware of the risk. And so, Eric, you, you brought the fact of, you know, patients come back from the hospital, how disruptive it is to their, their care patterns and, you know, all the disorientation, the blood clots, the CD. You know, the, these patients that are coming back from the hospital, not to say they're not, they're not susceptible to that, but they're receiving Medicare Part A skilled benefits where there's a th there are therapies involved to help, intended to help prevent all that. 
you know, our whole goal is to reduce that hospitalization, which will reduce the need for skilled care. We use predictive analytics and we take a look at, you know, the average patient in our environment, you know, is our nine different medications. Uh, when I say medications, I'm talking about prescribed medications. That doesn't um, account for any over-the-counter type medications, but medications that are covered under the Medicare Part D, D as in dog program. And so you do have, you know, I don't, I don't need to tell you, but, but, you know, you do have conflicts and contraindications that take place um, in that environment, especially when you have different providers caring for the patient for different reasons. And, you know, one of the nice things about this environment is that you typically have primary care providers who are true quarterbacks in the care of these folks. And by putting data in front of them, letting them understand there's nine different, 12 different or 20 different drugs and the contraindications, the overuse of the antibiotics, the inappropriate use of PPIs, you know, changes can take place. Doesn't mean it's easy, but changes can take place. And so it's using that using that data, particularly drug data, to put in front of providers. And we have a really nice and, and you know, it, while, while still early on, robust um, prescription initiative um, to reduce the number of uh, medications. And by the way, we're not at risk for the cost of medications. So we're doing it to produce better care and better outcomes for these patients and to reduce the need for unnecessary hospitalizations, the need or the ability to improve quality outcomes. And, and we're not doing it to curtail the amount that's being spent on drugs. It has nothing to do with that. It's clearly just with this population, too many medications is not a good thing. And so, you know, having the right quarterback there that's got the right information can help drive down the, the, the overuse of medication. And because our patients aren't always seeing a, a primary care physician, a cardiologist, a pulmonologist, an endocrinologist, it's really being managed by one team. You've got, the, you've got a much greater ability to care for them in a more cohesive manner from the drug perspective than you do a community patient that they go in to see their primary care physician and, and, and the physician says, I need to go see a cardiologist. I need to see a pulmonologist. I need to see an endocrinologist. That, that doesn't happen in this environment. It's typically all, once again, quarterbacked by that primary care physician. So it's using the, those data points and being able to put them in front of their providers and awakening them to everything that's being you know, um, um, fed to or, or, or provided to the patient to make a decision as to, is this really necessary? Am I getting the outcomes that I'm really looking for? Am I getting negative outcomes that I really never intended to get because of all these counter um, or contraindications? So I think that's, you know, we're pulling data from multiple sources, but that, that part D data is extremely important to us. The data that we're getting from the facility EMR and the physician EMR, when it comes to over-the-counter use that officially in this environment does get prescribed, it doesn't come through the Medicare side of things, ends up playing a significant role in the ability for that practitioner to guide and care for the patients a bit differently than if they were just in there and they're being forced to look through a paper chart and putting everything together. We're able to put things together in a very cohesive, very succinct way for them to view the patient 
um, from that perspective and that lens. Jason, I'd love to shift the conversation a little bit and talk about the outstanding run that you've had since you began participating in the MSSP. With more than six years now, LTCACO has gained valuable experience in driving better outcomes and improved quality, managing the episodic cost and developing in-house capabilities to predict program performance. So as, a, as an ACO, you've achieved well over 40 million in shared savings during the lifespan. And just recently, you've distributed over 2.5 million in bonus payments to LTC ACO participating practitioners. And 2022 has been a year of significant growth for LTC ACO, where you've welcomed several new key provider partners and you've seen growth in many of your existing practices over the past year. And with this growth, the ACO is now managing nearly $600 million in annual Medicare spend for its attributed beneficiaries. But with that comes, as we know, an extraordinary response, an extraordinary responsibility to each of your provider partners. And all of the performance success in the ACO has really proven to your facility physicians that they can create value, but it's required you to create a different level of alignment between providers and facilities. Now that the model is proven, you've got to sustain its success with all of the provider growth that's being realized. Can you discuss how you've aligned incentives between facilities and physicians as a key to success in LTCACO? And as a leader, how do you ensure that your physicians are appropriately engaged, supported, and compensated to drive the ACO's value-based care strategy? Sure. Well, you know, coming out of the Medicare Advantage world where we saw and we very much believed that we could align incentives and we got the desired results and we, we created networks of physicians that were well incented to getting better outcomes. We were able to take a lot of principles um, from the managed care world to bring them into the, institu in, into the institution world. And it's one of the, the few areas that... Um, do become challenging because you've got, you know, on one hand, people say, well, you're going to generate all these savings. Why are we giving all this money away? On the other hand, we really take the position that in order to be successful, we need to align the incentives. We need to get the money into the hands of providers. We need to be as generous as possible as we can with those dollars in order for these physicians um, to continue to care for these patients in a manner of which we need them. So, you know, we provide incentives to physicians, to facilities, and then, of course, the ACO, who's bearing, who has a contract with CMS, is bearing all the risk and all the costs associated with a lot of things I've been talking about. And it gets a disproportionate amount, but it's giving these operators, it's, it's sticking specifically to the physicians, it's giving physicians an opportunity to earn money for all the hard work that they're putting forth and caring for this patient population. Um, it's giving facilities money that's being demanded for services that's being demanded of them. We, if you study the skilled nursing facility world, you'll hear, you know, it started with bundle payments. It went to managed care. Everybody's saying, you got to do a better job. You got to do a better job. That's great. The bet there was if you do a better job, you'll stay in the network and you'll get referrals. That's nice. This is saying for that population who you don't really have to worry about getting referrals because they live with you, you're not going to get a disproportionate amount of the admissions because they already live with you. How do I get paid for all the things that are being demanded of me? 
Um, and so we really do err on the side of putting more money out on the street to our provider partners than most. Um, you know, we we did. I'll, I'll correct you, Daniel. On one thing, we did earn a little over twenty million twenty million dollars this past year, and actually put over four million dollars on the street. I think, you know, a portion of that stayed within the Genesis world, and so that net, I think, that you're referring to two and a half, really went really went outside to non-Genesis practitioners. But it's over four million dollars, and you know, you have a lot of small practitioners in this environment. You've got a few large, medium-sized groups. So the money is meaningful. Um, but to these small providers that are just fighting to stay independent, it is significant. Um, and it is welcomed and it is appreciated. And you know, we can't, we can't continue to grow and penetrate this market and and demand. Um, not not so much demand, but try to encourage better outcome without making sure our providers are properly incented. And so let, let me take the conversation just one step a little before, because we've been talking about the financial ramifications of producing savings and sharing those savings. CMS has a really appropriate guardrail up in this program. Um, and that is that, that that all sits on the quality side. And so if you don't hit certain quality thresholds, regardless of how much money you saved, you, you could actually get nothing. And so it's a well-balanced program. And so we try to, you know, we, we don't try, we do encourage on both ends of the coin, um, both cost initiatives and quality initiatives that match up with CMS in order to create their savings. So our, our providers are not only feeling good because they're doing the right thing by the patient, they're taking money, unnecessary dollars out of the system by saving our, our hospital utilization and then skilled utilization and then the unnecessary, at times, hospice utilization. They feel good about the quality outcomes as well. And so we, it, it's a very it's, it's a very line program that when communicated properly, they gravitate on to. A lot of these practitioners are, are as I indicated earlier, are small in nature. They're trying to stay independent. Their, their reimbursements relatively low. So, you know, paying them $20,000, $40,000 a year um, extra on top of their fee-for-service revenue and allowing them to participate in other um, bonus programs that CMS has out there or, or has had out there since the end of this year it, it, is very meaningful to them. So that, that shouldn't be discounted and we're very cognizant. So, you know, from the position that I set, um, our goal is to get as much money out into the hands of our providers as possible. This is not about holding back dollars and having the ACO make a ton of money. It's about figuring out ways to constantly get money into the hands of these providers. The more we can do that, the better we know we can get our results, the faster we can grow. So Jason, you've had a great run in the ACO, but I know there were some challenging times during the pandemic. You know, uh, during the midst of the pandemic, I mean, your ACO saw the direct impacts of COVID manifested through extraordinarily high Part A skilled utilization and then a dramatic decrease once your population was vaccinated. And after experiencing rates of 36,000 days per thousand at its peak, you've now seen the stabilization that's closer to 9,000 days per thousand, which is consistent with pre-pandemic levels. But all that said, I mean, there's been this normalization now in the Medicare utilization trend. And 
Um, that seems it seems to be like, you know, we're back to normal. But I know that there's one trend coming out of this pandemic that has not abated, and that's the impact on the physicians and the workforce. I mean, we're we're seeing now in the industry, there's just extreme levels of burnout and uh, the, the the situation is you know, turned into a, a crisis, you know, coming out of the pandemic with um, a, a lot of challenges there, needless to say. And you're, you know, in long-term care facilities, I mean, they're really on the front lines of COVID-19. I mean, a lot of the the people I know that you work with in the ACO, I mean, they've witnessed and experienced extreme trauma. You know, they've seen seniors that they care for, you know, suffer in fear and loneliness during the lockdowns. I mean, they've seen residents fall catastrophically ill. They've seen a lot of people die. And a lot of these patients died alone, you know, during the height of the pandemic because they weren't allowed to be visited by their loved ones. So, Jason, I wanted to just ask you about the impact of COVID-19 on the ACO and whether or not the business is now operating in more of a normal pre-pandemic steady state. And also, second to that, I wanted to also ask you about the physicians and the other professionals that comprise your workforce. I mean, how are they doing now coming out of the pandemic? I mean, you know, did, did you see a lot of uh, burnout with the, the people that you work with? And if so, how's the ACO supporting them? Yeah, thanks, Eric. You know, I'll correct you on one thing. The, I mean, COVID has been really, really rough on the ACO versus your community ACO that saw gross underutilization in services um, over the last couple of years. Our ACO saw gross overutilization, particularly of Medicare Part A services because of public health emergency. And so while we saw some stabilization of that in 2021, because this public health emergency has continued to go forward and extend itself, you, you, you do see facility operators taking advantage um, of the re regulatory requirements or lack thereof to skill a patient, thus get paid um, more money. So we do, we are experiencing, we, we continue to experience the financial ramifications of COVID and um, you know, we're heading into the flu season. So while we don't have, you know, RSV to deal with, we're still dealing with COVID and we still have flu. People are vaccinated. It's a highly vaccinated environment. That's not to say that they're not being exposed um, to, to people coming into facilities that aren't vaccinated and thus being being exposed to, to that. But it is, it, it continues to be a challenge for us. Um, you talked about during the height of COVID, the loneliness that people um, went through, you know, I can't talk to, you know, all the death and I'm not sure that's terribly relevant um, for this part of the, the conversation. And, and, you know, it's a reality. It's very material. Um, but one of the unexpected costs that we saw as people were getting vaccinated is they were coming out of the rooms. They were leaving kind of that independent environment, moving to more of a congregate environment. And in doing so, um, where they hadn't been around people, they haven't gotten up out of bed, they haven't moved around, we saw a high increase in the rehabilitation needs of this population, which was really, really caught us by surprise. We didn't, we didn't understand it well enough to be able to predict it. Um, and it went on for several months. It, you know, back in 2021, as we went from that lockdown environment to um, more of a congregate environment, um, and it's it's one that um, you know at the height is, is certainly dissipated, but it's still not um, um, immaterial. I think when it comes to 
the providers, they did go through, they have gone through a lot of trauma. You know, we saw a lot of people drop, you know, whether it's nurse practitioners or physicians drop out of this part of the workforce. We saw a contraction um, in some of the groups just, you know, from we, we don't, they're, they're not our groups, right? We don't employ these practitioners, whether they're nurse practitioners or, or physicians, but we, d- we did see a reduced number of providers that were willing to practice in a very, you know, toxic and dangerous environment due to COVID. We think we're seeing things bounce back. I mean, and there's a lot of um, acquisitiveness of the medium and large size providers to continue to dive into this sector of the, the, the economy. Um, so we, we think we see it coming back, but it, it's not to say that the trauma is not, there's not an overhang on, on the trauma. I think that one of the, the good things that came out of all this is facilities have really second-guessed the need to set or second-guessed their desire to send patients out to the hospital unnecessarily putting the patient at risk to contract COVID. And that has actually played into their desire to figure out ways to care in place. Again, totally counterintuitive, I get it. But you know, they, they've said to themselves, why, why am I gonna risk sending Mrs. Smith out to a facility um, or to a hospital? Her getting COVID and that, that COVID exposure could happen anywhere, right? It could happen in the ambulance. It could happen in the ER. It could happen from the family visiting them in a hospital and then coming back to the facility. And then you've got a COVID outbreak and people are not only getting sick, but they're not allowed to take no admissions. So there's, there are some defensive measures that we think will proliferate into the future that will actually have a, a beneficial impact in the long term on this population being moved through the continuum as quickly as they had prior to COVID. Yeah, great response, Jason. I want to latch on to what you're talking about, future looking, and uh, and talk about some of the goals that uh, CMS has of having every Medicare beneficiary in an ACO or an ACO-like model by 2030. And it seems that LTC ACO is well-equipped to help more providers make that transition to value-based care. For long-term care patients, better care and better health means ensuring that patients receive advanced care planning, regular wellness visits, and preventing avoidable hospitalizations, including emergency room visits. And as well as use of skilled nursing and hospice services. And all of these are part of the population health playbook for the ACO, which provides patient-centered coordinated care. But it seems that, you know, across the country, geriatric patients' needs are often overlooked or minimized as compared to other populations in the vast environment that falls outside of the influence of value-based care. So as we wrap up our conversation today, I'd love to get your take on the future scale and impact of value-based care as it pertains to an ever-growing and often marginalized population of seniors in our country. When you think of the number of Americans age 65 and older, more than doubling over the next 40 years, reaching 80 million in 2040, and the number of adults aged 85 and older quadrupling between 2000 and 2040, will value-based care be our historic moment to bring to geriatric patients the dignity and quality of life that they deserve? Um, answering your first question, your last question first, I think the answer is, is yes. Um, 
think that when you look at CMS's goal, to your point of having 100% of the population in a value-based uh, um, environment by the year 2030, yeah, I'm not sure a CMS, when they set that goal out, really considered you know, this sector of the healthcare delivery system. And the way you know that is because you know the ISNP environment can only penetrate so far because it's a person-by-person -person affirmative election. The Accountable Care Organizations, or MSSP program, was really set up for um, the community population and the institutional population was not contemplated. Um, in there. So we have been very fortunate, you know, for a number of years, we were a unicorn. We were the only ones out there doing what we're doing. We now have a, a few other folks that are are attempting to do what we're doing, which is, you know, on one hand, it, it unveiled great deaf competitors. On the other hand, you know, you, you need people out there that um, um, can help educate um, the community, can help educate the regulators, and can help lobby for changes in a program to make them um, more relevant to the population you're serving. And I do see um, movement. Um, I'm not sure 2030, quite frankly, is going to be a reasonable goal um, for 100% and how they're going to calculate what that 100% um, really looks like. But I do think, I absolutely think value-based care, whether it's for the geriatric population or for the non-geriatric population, is a way to create value out of healthcare, that it's not this is not a real estate business. It's not a residential care business. It's about taking care of people, trying to improve outcomes. And unless you incent these providers and give them the information they need to do a better job, when I say better, it's not that they're doing a bad job. It's just the more information they have, the more they're, the different their decision-making skills are going to be, um, the better off this, this country is going to be. So I see a world in which you know, as we go past 2030, where we, we do have changes to um, programs like Medicare shared savings. I mean, I'll give you kind of a, a contra um, perspective. And you, you, you've, you, you've heard of the program, the ACO REACH program, which is a, a takeoff and a, 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 another value-based program that came out of CMMI. And that C and REACH stands for community. Um, it, it doesn't stand for institutional. <laughs> Um, it's not intended to care for the institutional population. So, you know, the more that we get in front of CMS and the wonderful people at CMMI, who are really thinking in an innovative manner and can adopt these programs to deal with yet another subset. Because when you think about it, we've got 70 plus million people sitting in, the, in, in Medicare today. If you want to be conservative and say 50% of those are 35 plus or are sitting in Medicare Advantage, and you've got another 17 that are sitting in MSSP and the, and the like. There's there's a whole there's a whole lot of room there to go. And most of those people, most of the people that aren't getting touched right now, are in institutional type settings. And I believe CMS will continue to innovate with regard to these programs in order to enhance the care and quality outcomes for its population. And I do think. Um, that this geriatric population, because it's being managed by CMS and not by 10 different commercial insurance payers, because it's being managed by CMS, they've got an unusual ability to drive change and drive adoption of programs. And I'm hoping to see that um, in the future. And I think that's really the only way they get anywhere close to their goal. I think they've done, they continue to do a lot with the community base 
and moving that needle higher and higher. It's wonderful. I still think you've got this, this other bastion of, of, of the universe that, that hasn't properly been contemplated for. But the more innovation that can come out of private industry, like what we've done and others are, are trying to do, I think the better off the, the entire geriatric population is going to be. Well, Jason, I really appreciate you coming to the Race to Value podcast this week. I know Daniel and I really learned a lot from you. You have a very unique perspective in terms of the value movement and certainly uh, just outstanding results with LTCACO. So hope uh, you can uh, come back to the podcast at some point in the future and we can uh, you know, talk more about your success in the long term. Thank you. No, I'd I'd welcome that, and I'd really like to talk about the success from a you know from a clinical and outcomes perspective about what we're doing. I mean, we're, we're we've been out there now for six years. We're kind of measured in dog years, if you will. Um, it takes a long time to really know how you did, but I think the the innovative work that we're putting in is really working to drive meaningful results that can be well documented, and we can talk about in the future um, with much greater or a different level of confidence than we are today.